Hello again, podcast listeners. This is Darren, and if you haven't listened to part one of this week's episode, you should probably do that, otherwise you won't recognize our guest lecturer, Dr. Richard Hess. Uh, Just a reminder, Dr. Hess provided some visuals to accompany his lecture, and you can find our video recording of this podcast on YouTube to see his PowerPoint presentation as well. So click on the link in the description, or you can search on YouTube for our channel, Forefront Church at Harvey Park. But if all of you've got is this audio, of course, there's still a lot of great stuff coming up. So buckle up. Here comes part two. You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon, as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. So then, how was the uh, the governmental structure impacted by right. all Right, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That'd That's be okay. a good question that you asked earlier. So I've been avoiding it. So uh, go on to the, to the next slide. Uh, if, if it's a map, just go by that. I try to throw a map. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, here I want to talk a little bit about the structure of uh, ancient Israel um, and the family and government in Israel of, the, of Joshua and Judges. At the, at the center, you have what we would call today the nuclear family, sometimes a bit extended to include the grandparents and uh, everyone living under their house. So several adult uh, brothers, the sisters, if they're married, would move out to their own uh, families. The society was what is called patrilineal. That is, the, the line goes down through the, through the uh, males, and they inherit the real estate property, the land itself, which is inalienable and, and doesn't pass out of, it, it's allotted land that can never be sold. It's not necessarily given to the nuclear family, but maybe to a more extended family, sometimes called, uh, sometimes a clan, but a clan might be several extended families. And uh, in Joshua 13 to 20, 21, we're told about how the, how the land was allotted and given to all the families in Israel. So all the families got land, and that never left that family. As I say, it passed down from one male son to the next male son. Now, that doesn't mean when the daughters moved into another family, another uh, household or house of the father, as it's called, uh, and got married, that they didn't take anything with them. What they took with them, movable property, which they inherited, which was called a dowry. And that dowry was then taken as, as part of, uh, of, of their own uh, ability and, and given the ability to live. But the actual land stayed within the sons and male line and passed down. And so that allotted land could never be sold. Even if, if the family fell into debt, they might uh, rent it out for a period of time. They might sell it in, in a sense. But according to the Bible... Every 50 years, all that had to revert back to the original family. The people who originally fell into debt might no longer be alive at that point, but at least the land would never, ever be permanently removed from the family. That was the ideal that was set up 
uh, certainly in uh, Deuteronomy, for for the people to follow. So this was the, uh, they're talking about the land of the year of jubilee, right? Every fifty years, where it's yeah, just like the a, year of jubilee. Every every yeah. fifty years would be a year of jubilee, and there would reset. be a return. So yeah, so all all debts of that sort would be canceled. You so if you sold yourself into what you might call debt servitude or indentured servitude. It would be for a period of time. It would never be uh, permanently. An Israel, uh, Israelite could never sell themselves permanently or be sold permanently as a debt slave, uh, at least in terms of their family. And uh, so then you have the clan, and then above that level, made up of multiple clans, are, is the tribe. But you see the tribe is made up of clans, of extended families, of the house of the father. So it's all sort of uh, kinship-related. And, and this is a very important point, that ancient Israel was all based on kinship. And in, a, and, and in Israel itself, when it settles in the land, does not live in cities. It does not settle in cities. It settles in the central hill country in what are villages, small villages that allow for people to work the land, the land that they possess, uh, and yet not be so crowded that they can't, you know, they can't get to their land. So the point is, those villages are dotted throughout the whole region. There's like 300 plus of them that have been identified and discovered. They're all in the central hill country. They were, they came in, when Israel came into the land, they didn't, uh, like some people argue, well, the Israelites just came in, wiped everybody out, and then took over everybody's land. No, they didn't. Actually, what they did was they took land that was unoccupied. Uh, that central hill country was not occupied, and if you look at a text like Joshua 17, 14 to 18, you'll see that they come into the land, they need more land, they come to Joshua, one of the tribes does, and says, we need more land, and he, say, he doesn't say, well, go out and kill a bunch of Canaanites and take their land, no, he says, go up into the hill country further and clear out more land, clear, clear the brush, clear everything, and use that, obtain it for yourself. And that will be will give you that land as part of your inheritance. So, so this was the ideal. The tribes were made up of, of clans and extended families that lived in villages. And in these villages, the elders, the older figures, often male, were in fact the sort of unofficial leaders. Well, they were recognized leaders who made decisions. They were, they were, they would often sit at the gate or entrance to the village, which may not have been particularly fortified, but you would normally have a, a central entrance or something, and that's where the business would be conducted and where decisions would be made and where the elders would decide. If you look at Ruth, for example, when uh, Boaz comes to appeal to uh, the person who, is in, who, who has the right to marry Ruth, he does this before elders at a villa, in, in the village at the gate, and they make that decision then at that time to allow him to marry Ruth. So uh, this is kind of how the society was set up at a local level. Then, as you read in the book of Judges, there were judges. Because although Israel was basically an, uh, f largely full of these un unfortified villages, the villages were up in the hill country, so you couldn't simply ride a chari chariots up to them and attack them very easily. But still... They could be attacked, and they were. And so what they needed was somebody to come together and bring them and help lead them 
and then to make decisions that were too difficult for the elders or involve decisions between villages and things like this. And that's where God raised up judges. And the story of the judges is, of course, the story of that book that I believe you've been looking at. Alongside of that, another more or less permanent uh, group of people were the priests. Now, the priests had, of course, special privileges because they came into the very presence of God, and uh, their priesthood was determined by line. So it begins with Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses, and then it goes down, father, son, father, son, and then it spreads out a little bit so you can have more than one priest at any given time. But the priests were determined by lineage, they were, a, they were teachers of the word. They were the ones who gave the sacrifices. They did all those kinds of responsibilities. Um, but unlike what you might expect, because you would expect, well, certainly the priests then could amass wealth to themselves. And in the New Testament, by that time, you see things have changed a lot, and, and the high priests there are doing that. But not originally. The original vision of the priests was that they would have no land. They were the only tribe, they were the only group not given or allowed to, uh, to inherit any land, which meant that they were always dependent upon the people for the sacrifices that they would bring, and then they would have some of those sacrifices to eat. It, it created a whole different, uh, it turned sort of things uh, upside down. In the ancient world, the priests were the religious leaders in other societies, and they were given all kinds of special privileges and all kinds of power, and a lot of that rested with lands that they would then acquire, even as today, wealthy people buy land. But in, in, for the priests themselves in Israel, they were never allowed to acquire that land. So they were always dependent upon the society around them. And this, this created a much more, I don't want to quite say egalitarian society, but it certainly is a, a, a much more family-based society. Let's go on to the next slide. I want to show you something here. Look, at this is a reconstruction of a village that was excavated, at least in part, in the hill country of Israel. And usually when I, I give, uh, give a, a, a lecture or anything else, I, I ask people, and of course I know if you aren't watching this, you can't see the slide. But the thing about it is there's uh, maybe 15 houses there, and the houses are all exactly the same size. The interesting thing about the villages in Israel was there was no big giant house, a there was no palace, there was no temple, there was no special storage center for redistribution of goods and grains. Everyone, as the Bible says, lived under their own vine and lived with their own fields and farmed, which was the single most important uh, thing, land for the creation of wealth and the, and the subsistence level that many people lived at day-to-day -day living and depending upon God and upon his goodness to give them the food that they needed from their own land. So the houses are all the same size. They aren't different. And uh, this is how it was in early Israel. There, there wasn't a super wealthy class. There was no king. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But let's go on to the next so slide. This, this kind of reminds me, and I know we're going to talk more about it, but my ancestors, my Mennonite uh, heritage that came over uh -huh. from Russia into central Kansas, th these kind of things remind me a lot of what those sediments were like. Because you, you kind of had a central place where you had your church, your school, your blacksmith, and that kind of stuff. But otherwise, everyone was just kind of spread out equally, and everyone had their house and their barn, and then the back 20 acres that they farmed. And so everyone kind of has, well, exactly. has their own thing. And, and, of course, that's true pretty largely in pre-industrial 
in the pre-industrial world where you couldn't drive somewhere or go somewhere like that. So the villages were of necessity, mm -hmm. like I said, maybe 15 or so houses, because everybody would have plots of land outside of the village that they would have to reach. They'd have to go there during the day to graze their sheep and goats and maybe a, a, a few cattle to do other things like that, and also to raise the wheat and barley, which were the staple uh, plants. And then closer at home, you, you have... Uh, maybe one or maybe two houses, maybe you have an, a large nuclear family or an extended family living together in kind of a compound within the village. And so that's where you would have your vines, you would have your fig tree, you would have the, uh, the animals that you, at night, you would keep there for safety. You would also have all the domestic chores of cooking and taking care of things, especially outside during most of the year when it was warm enough to do that. Uh, next slide, please. And within the house itself, most of the houses were two stories. And this is the standard Israelite house in the ancient uh, times. And it gradually uh, changed by the time after, after 550 B.C. and the people returned from the exile. But certainly in the time of the judges, the, the house you would have would be two stories. It would, it's sometimes called four rooms because you'd enter it. It would be a rectangle and a long rectangle, and you'd entered it from one of the short sides, and then you'd have basically three halls that were separated by pillars that went down along the long side. The middle hall was open, and it may even have been open at the top to allow for cooking and for other domestic chores. On either side, you would have the place where calves and other special animals would be brought in, and they could feed and be kept there. Um, the fat, the fattened calf, for example, in the New Testament would be a calf that was grown up in that context with plenty of food and grain and everything else, but also pretty much kept in that environment. That way, those animals would also provide natural warmth for the house in winter when it got colder. And then you would have access through ladders or some other way to a second floor over on top of both of the two side halls that had the animals underneath. And on that floor, you would have sleeping rooms and those kinds of domestic quarters. And uh, so uh, the top of the house would be flat. The roof would be flat. You could even maybe get up there and sleep, especially on warm nights and that sort of thing. So, so that's kind of the way in which the people lived. Again, a house like this could easily accommodate seven or eight people with, with a comfort uh, although they were different sizes in different places. And it's these houses, 10 or 15 of them, that might make up a village or 20. And then the villages would uh, provide kind of that center kinship based with families, a few extended families maybe living together. Okay, next slide, please. Yeah, and then let's go on uh, to the next slide. Okay, so as we go forward in, in this and, and look at it a little bit more, one of the things that you may, you're interested in, I mentioned very briefly, the priests did the teaching, and they taught people uh, the Word of God. But the Word of God was something that everybody was to have access to through teaching. The Deuteronomy says it's to be recounted every seven years. The people at, the, at, at one of the main feasts are to get together and hear the whole Word of God, the whole of the law, the Torah, the first five books read. So it was very important. And we may suspect that not only the priests, certainly them, but also others might have learned how to read and write. 
And so we have a number of sites. For example, the biblical site of Ebenezer, which you get mentioned in Samuel. It overlooks one of the Philistine strongholds, that of Afek. And uh, as it does so, Ebenezer is also an Israelite village. It's been excavated. And what they found there was a couple of potsherds, which when they put together, they saw writing on it. And as they looked at the writing, they realized this was somebody learning their ABCs. It's practicing letters. Oh, wow. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet in, in, in Hebrew, uh, from around the 11th century, even as early as 1100 B.C., the time of the judges. So we know, and this is in a small village. Ebenezer is not a big town. It's like so much of Israel, a small village. So we know that even in the small villages, there were people practicing their ABCs, which meant people were learning how to read and write. We don't know how many, but we can suspect that there were a good number. And there was an interest in this, for connecting with the Word of God, as well as simply for doing business and other things. If you wrote your name, which many people, I'm sure, could, because you, you often did that for contracts and other things, your name might have five or six letters in it, and then it would be son or daughter of, and then it would be your father's name, which would also have five or six letters. Well, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If you put all those together, you have half the alphabet that you would have learned simply by being able to write your name and read it. So it's not impossible to imagine that on a simple level, we're not talking about people going out and composing Shakespearean sonnets, but we are saying that on a simple level, people were able, many people were able to read and write, basically. Next slide, please. And uh, we also know there's not a lot of material but there was a place called Tel Kayafa overlooking the Elah Valley. And from around the time of when David fought uh, Goliath in the Elah Valley, uh, that site uh, was occupied. And when they excavated it, they found there a potsherd, which was the ancient note paper for people to write on. And on that potsherd, they, they, could, find, they could identify five lines of writing, which is really the largest, uh, I think, single unit anywhere from this period in Israel of writing. Now, we have a whole papyri and other things found, of course, in Egypt next door and elsewhere, but in Israel itself, it shows that there were people who could write and did so and made notes, and maybe this is a list, maybe it's a letter. It's been a lot of discussion because it's not easy to read exactly what it is. What archaeological evidence uh, do we have for the Israelite settlements in Canaan? Right. Okay, well, I've already addressed that a bit, right? So yep. we said that around, uh, and, and this all happens around 1200 B.C. If you could go back to the, to the map, just a minute, please. Yep. Okay, so there are about two dozen Canaanite strongholds and sites, like Shechem was one, Hatzor was one, Jerusalem was one also before uh, David conquered it. Uh, but... Uh, they're, they're there of 13, 1400, 1300 B.C., in my understanding of the chronology. And then I would put the Exodus in the 13th century, 1250, 1260, 1270 B.C., sometime around there, which means they come into the land around the latter part of the 13th century. And we do know that uh, we do, uh, the book of Joshua suggests there was about five years when a lot of those wars in Joshua 1 through 12 took place. And so Israel, after that, settles. Where does it settle? I say it settles in the central hill country. 
So if you take this, uh, this map and you look at Megiddo, which is up there a little bit to the north, um, west of the Sea of Galilee, sort of halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. This side of Megiddo sits on the Jezreel Valley, which is a large, large valley which cuts across the central hill country, provides a major pass for like the Egyptian armies going north or the Assyrian Babylonian armies coming south. They would often use this pass. It's also a breadbasket for uh, food and support for that for Israel. But from there on south, in the center of the map, uh, down Dothan, Shechem, Bethel, Jerusalem, along what, what we would say is the very top of the hill country, the watershed of the hill country, where to the east it flows into the Jordan River and to the west it flows into the Mediterranean Sea, the, the rainwater. That whole area is called the Central Hill Country, and that's where Israel settles and you see that in the Bible, because if you read Judges, if you read uh, uh, Ruth, if you read 1 Samuel, until, until David comes along and sets up the kingship in Jerusalem, and then things begin to transform a bit with the acquisition of Canaanite strongholds. But throughout that, the narratives, the stories are set in the central hill country. Even Samson, when he goes to the Philistines and other cities in the west, still he's coming out of that region. And so do so many of the other stories. Think about it and, and look at it. The Levite and his concubine, the story the, from Bethlehem up to Gibeon, and the story of Micah, in, uh, which we talked about and when they attacked Dan. But, it's, but Micah is living in the central hill country at the time. So that becomes that center. And it's something like, archaeologically, they've discovered and identified some 300 village sites that were not there before. 1250 BC, they didn't exist. 1200 BC, they're there and in the following decades. And suddenly, this is the clearest evidence we have of Israel's appearance. These villages, village sites, and not, uh, most of them have not been excavated. They've been found just by walking across the land and finding the concentrations of potsherds and then dating those potsherds because the nature of potsherds is that they work their way to the surface, at least some do, and they can be uh, located. And so, as archaeologists and others walk the land and walk this whole region, that's what they found, an explosion of population in this area of settlements that take place right around the time Israel comes into the land. It's the strongest archaeology we have for Israel actually in the land, and it conforms with, as I say, the books of Josh of Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel. Now let's go to the next slide, if we could. There's one other important piece of evidence. The pharaoh of Egypt, a man by the name of Merneptah, erected this stela, which you can see in the Cairo Museum, which a new Cairo Museum, by the way, is opening up. I think the official dedication is in November. It'll be the largest museum in the world, and it will be one of the most exciting ones because the old Cairo Museum was kind of a warehouse. But anyway, if you go there, either one, you can see this wonderful stela. It talks all about the pharaoh's great conquest, mainly in what is today west of Egypt in Libya, south of Egypt, the Sudan, and that region. But the last few lines at the very bottom talk about him going into what is today the modern state of Israel, uh, ancient Israel, and he actually mentions Israel. He mentions Israel along with Three cities, Ashkelon, Gezer, and Yenoam, which are all Canaanite cities at that time that were occupied, in 1209 B.C., he made this campaign. But 
many pharaohs did this before him. They would erect stela and record their conquests in this region, and they'd list the cities and so forth that they conquered and anything else. Well, as I say, Israel is mentioned here. It's not mentioned as a city. It's mentioned as a people, a people group. So they didn't have a central city at this time, but they were a people, and that's exactly how the Bible portrays them, of course, in Joshua and Judges. And what Merneptah is saying is that he conquered them, and this war is not recorded in the Bible. I suspect it took place between the time of Joshua and maybe uh, some of the events in the book of, of Judges. In any case, it's the first mention of Israel. Before this, in the various pharaohs who went into the land, we don't have any mention of Israel. We have the different cities and places mentioned, but not Israel. And this is the last pharaoh to do this. After him, the Egyptian empire in that region disintegrates and begins to reduce in size and pretty much disappears by 1150 BC. So at this time, he's able to still mention, uh, he's able to mention going in there and here, the, the last such itinerary and the very first time Israel is mentioned outside of the Bible from around 1200 BC, 1209 BC. So we actually have extra biblical evidence of this time as well. And so we have both textual evidence from outside the Bible, we have the Bible, and we have the archaeological evidence of uh, villages and village life from the Central Hill Country, all of which coincide and confirm the existence of a new people group called Israel in the Central Hill Country at this time. No, that's, Very, incre uh, that's incredibly interesting to think about. And you mentioned in there too, like sort of the upcoming kingship. Well, um, in Deuteronomy 17, God gives yeah. guidelines for an Israelite king. Does this mean that God intended Israel to have an earthly uh, kingdom or human king? Yeah, let's, let's go on to that. Let's go to, I think we have to skip a few slides here to make our way down. Just go, 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 go. Yeah, there we are. So I want to look at that section in Deuteronomy uh, closely because, of course, when Israel comes into the land, it doesn't have a king. And we know that in 1 Samuel, as you're studying there, you know that when the people ask for a king because they want a permanent leader to fight against their big enemy, the Philistines. And so they, they need somebody to lead them. And judges aren't good enough because they can't trust that regularly. They want a king, they say, like all the other nations. That's a very dangerous sign. And when Samuel comes to God and, and says they've asked for a king, God says they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. So in doing so, they're doing something that because of their anxiety and concern for their lives and everything else has led them down this direction. However, in Deuteronomy already, we have the idea of what an ideal king should look like. And I want to take a few minutes to look at how a king was understood in, uh, in the Old Testament and how it was understood in Israel in a way of very different from the world around it. Of course, the Israelites at that point wanted a king, and the king that came and the kings that followed tend to be like the other kings around them and very different from this description. But this is the ideal that they, that they were said to follow. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled it, you say, let us send a king over us like all the nations around us, which, of course, is what they're doing at this point in Samuel. Be sure to appoint over you a king your God chooses. That's a very kind of uh, ambiguous statement. How will God choose? Well, we know that he chooses through the prophet Samuel, Saul, and then he chooses David in the same way. So that is important, and, and they must look to one of their leaders to, to 
assist in the choice. But look at what it goes on to say. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. He cannot be a king from outside. He cannot be a usurper. He cannot be uh, some conquest emperor who comes in from outside and takes over the land. He must be from your Israelites. But you see that also in that sentence, there's the implication that he's not a special elite group. Some kings in the ancient world, not all, but some were considered divine, even godlike. The, the pharaohs of Egypt were uh, recognized in this way. But no, this is to be one from among you, from among your brothers and sisters. It's not anything special, uh, some special family or a semi-divine family. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. No one else is to come in and rule you. You are to be ruled by your own people. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord God has told you, you are not to go back that way again. In other words, the king is not to amass military power. Horses were not used as farm animals. They were used for military purposes. They were used not primarily as cavalry. They were used to draw chariots. Chariots were actually primarily mobile firing platforms to get uh, archers around the battlefield quickly and effectively. And so the horses would do that, and they, they would be fearsome, uh, fearsome opponents on the battlefield. But you're not supposed to depend on chariots. You're not supposed to depend on horses and acquire a lot of them. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. You're not supposed to accumulate wealth. Now, if you read, as you read on, that's true pretty much with Saul, less with David, and not at all with Solomon, who accumulates all that stuff. So, so this is not going in the right direction. But the very purpose of a king was military and defensive in the eyes of many people. But what God is saying, don't make that the purpose of the king you choose. Let's go on to the next one slide. One of my, my favorite things about this scripture here is that God makes sure to tell them, no, you're not supposed to go back to Egypt. As we've been going through this thing, yeah. the times that the people want to return to Egypt is so much. Like that's their own, that's their solution <laughs> to everything, to every bit of hardship, all their hunger, all their thirst, all their hardness. They, they want to go back to Egypt because at least we were fed. At least we weren't going to die there. And here God makes, always makes that explicit. There, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was always better and safer there. <laughs> But he challenges them. Okay, continue to read in Deuteronomy 17. We read verses 14 to 17. Now we're reading verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. Of course, the priests would be the teachers, and they would preserve and keep the, the law and the, the word of God. So what is the king's main responsibility? It's to write and make a copy of the law. He must learn how to read and write in order to do that. And then he must make his own copy that he will take with him and keep with him. He is to have his own Bible, as it were. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel." Now, the important thing that you see here is that he's not to be concerned with security in human ways, but he rather is to be concerned with knowing the Word of God and following that. So the king, instead of being a powerful, wealthy, uh, uh, fearful figure, is to be a model of what the rest of Israel is to be. 
It sounds all like of Israel is to, is is to hear and obey the law and to follow it, and that is exactly what the king is to be. He is to be taken from one of the people. It's not said he's to be elected necessarily, but certainly the people, and you see this in Samuel, have a role in proclaiming him and recognizing him as king. If they didn't want him, he would not have become king. So the people have a role in this. Certainly he's also chosen by God in a special way. But his role, his primary role in Deuteronomy is to learn the word of God and to be a model of those who learn it, who memorize it, who copy it, who internalize it, and who live it out and are faithful to God. And if he does that, then God will ensure the security of the land and all that is good and promised will happen. It sounds like uh, the king is almost more like a priest, like a glorified, a different way of no. defining a priest of, uh, like you're saying, the model of the behavior. Yes, yes, but a kind of secular counterpart because he is, of course, responsible for the administration of the kingdom, for making sure things run, for the defense of the kingdom, for all, for making judgments over the people, beyond the elders being able to decide and that sort of thing. So he has a special role that is that is certainly more in what we might today call the secular state. But of course, there is no secular state. It's all part of God's will and God's direction. But the priestly activity is, of course, focused entirely on representing the people before God through sacrifices and offerings and representing God to, to the people through teaching them. But the king is very much in that line, as are all, ours are to be all of Israel, as one who follows the word of God and uh, leads the people in that. Yeah. So, um, you know, as we read in, in the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, what is the most important piece of knowledge to know as it helps the, you know, the modern reader understand what's going on? <laughs> well, I think the, the most important thing is to see that all roads lead back to God and his will and his guidance and his, his law um, that he has for the people to live out their lives, that they might live the best way possible, that they are reflecting his image, the image of God in, in, between one another, between their families, their clans, their society, and even beyond that, as Exodus says, you're a kingdom of priests. So ultimately the purpose is not to conquer other nations, but to represent God to them so that they would want to become like Israel, that they would join Israel, that they would truly become also believers. But I think that's really the important uh, understanding, that as the people follow and obey the covenant of God that he has given them in his word, they're blessed. And as they turn from it, uh, maybe not on the same day, sometimes on the same day, but but as, as the years go by, as the months and years go by, they face much greater hardship than they ever needed to. Again and again, the people have the opportunity and they cry unto God in their distress. He delivers them. He brings them, brings them forth from their enemies and persecutors. But, and then they prosper in the land as they follow him. But then they turn and they start worshiping other gods. They turn away from the God of Israel. And as they do that, then... He judges them, and again, another group comes to oppress them, and more hardship comes. So I think the important thing is to see the role of faithfulness to God and the call of that that it represents among the people during the time of the judges and right in through First Samuel and 
Second Samuel. Yeah, as as we talked on on last week's podcast, the book of Judges is just that cycle uh, that Dr. Hesse, you mentioned of uh, falling into sin, of worshiping other idols, of crying out for a rescuer and God rescuing them, but then the cycle begins again, and it just gets worse and worse, and it's almost as if there's something wrong, like with the human heart, like there's something that needs fixing. Of course, that you know that that's the road that that points us to Jesus. Then, as He comes and and can give us that new heart that can. Be obedient uh, in at a different level with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I think it's important always. I mean, as you come to the end of the book of Judges, you come to uh, uh, several places where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that is a, both a warning, but it was also an opportunity. I think the way God set up that society was the most fair uh, opportunity for as many Israelites as possible to take it. It was a truly egalitarian, family-based society in which people could live their lives freely and and, uh, work the land, enjoy it, and be blessed. And you see some of this in the book of Ruth, which also takes place during the Judges. So it's not entirely bad bad news. It's just that again and again, sadly, the people turn away from God and they reject him. And finally, that spot, it, it's less a cycle. It becomes more of a spiral. And even more than that, it kind of just breaks apart until finally, in the final chapters of Judges, you have no judges. And instead, you have civil war. The people aren't fighting against an external enemy. They're fighting against themselves. And they virtually destroy it, one of the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. And so it's a really tragic situation at the end. All kinds of bad things happen. The increasingly bad treatment towards women, the uh, less egalitarian nature of that society. Early on, you see people who are not necessarily Israelites, who are judges even. A fellow like Shamgar Benanat, mentioned in Judges 4 and 5, who is a judge. He's called a judge. Uh, That name is not Israelite. He is coming from outside of Israel, presumably converted to Israel, became a believer. Don't know. Maybe his family did, and he grew up in that. But somehow... He comes in. And so you have this opportunity for people of all different classes and genders to rise, like Deborah, who becomes a judge as well. In the society, there's a flexibility and a freedom there. There's really, it's, it's a blessing and a blessed time, potentially. The problem is the human heart, where people turn away from God, and then things go and get worse. And then sadly, we come into a period uh, in Samuel where then people want a king, and the king does not turn out to be the ideal figure that they wanted, in uh, at least as far as Saul is concerned. Yeah, no, it's it's like we, it's the story that keeps going on, and we keep seeing the cycle of the story through Israel, and I think through our own lives as well. So it's it's interesting to sort of see the story in different in different levels like that, where like they, they, no. like Darren was saying, and what we've been talking about, where they. Where like the, the amazing part to as a reader is like you forget the timeline where these are hundreds of years are passing by, but they've seen miraculous things done by God. Yes. And they can see it with their own eyes. And we always at least tell ourselves, like, well, if God just showed me a sign, you know, here in Denver or something, I there's no way I wouldn't believe. Yeah. But then, you know, we see people firsthand, you know, seeing those and still turning away. Yeah. And I think there are signs. I think God does things every day, and I think he works sometimes in miraculous ways. Uh, part of it is having the eyes of faith to see it, and part of it is believing. Um, 
even we in the West are, I think, a minority among Christians in the world. But in much of the Christian world, even today, as well as down through history, miracles have been done. And people, but people have the eyes of faith to see it as well, healings and, and just tremendous signs and things. And uh, part of it is not to linger on those. In fact, Jesus said as a wicked and adulterous uh, generation that asks for a sign, uh, <laughs> rather he calls people to believe and to act on faith. And he says no sign will be given them except the sign of the son of, uh, uh, the sign of Jonah, which is being uh, Jesus himself being dead for three days and then rising from the dead. And it is that resurrection which is the sign that is above all signs, because everything changes from that. Oh, absolutely. Dr. Hess, it has been a pleasure talking to you, with you, listening, being able to answer, or being able to ask you questions. Is there anything we miss here that, I mean, obviously we can go on for a while on this, but is there anything we miss that you want to touch on real quick? I think these are some of the really important areas that you've touched on as you go into your study in Judges and in Samuel. I think it's really important to see the, the, the way in which the relationship of the individual people to God makes all the difference. And I think in the world we live in today, which is not a world of stability and, uh, and, and security, uh, even perhaps as it was for some people a generation ago, it's no longer that. And I think we need all the more to find our faith and our hope in God and to see that what God created and what he desired for his people then as for us now is not that we should be free of any threat or, or, or uh, uh, problems, but that rather we should trust in him. And by trusting in him, we can find that strength to go forward, knowing that our fortune, our hope, all that we have is not in this life, but lies in the world to come. And uh, where looking back upon this life, it will seem just a very brief period and a brief time in which we had opportunity to say yes to God. Absolutely. Uh, Pastor Darren, any uh, parting thoughts here before we wrap this up? Oh, I just love the vision uh, of Israel that Dr. Hess described of, of how they relate to each other and they have their cohesive family units and, and are just ultimately allegiant to God. Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, what, to what extent is heaven going to be like that where we're all working the land and enjoying our lives and in the resurrection and that kind of thing. So yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah, very much. Oh, absolutely. Great things to think about. If you have uh, questions or thoughts and you want to send them, send them to us, send us, send them to us at life at forefrontchurch.tv. Or if you're there on Sundays, put your questions in the back of the worship center. We'd be loved to see them, hear them. Dr. Hess, maybe we can even throw a few more your way. You can send us some responses if we get some questions for you. So we, I'll, I'll put that on you. We'll see if we'll see if what questions we get in. So we appreciate your time, Dr. Hess. All right, Darren. Thank you so much for your time as well. And once again, I'm Rob Lazzi. Thank you so much for listening to the Forefront Church podcast. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, more to the story. Podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. 
We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.